Hi, I'm Sam Ballerton Crimes. And I'm Alice Billet. In this episode of Welcome, I have the amazing good fortune of talking with Kenyan novelist Yvonne Adiambo O'War. As a book nerd, I love this episode. Why did you decide to interview Yvonne? Well, I'm a huge fan of her work, and for me, it really speaks to the issues we explore in our show. Her novels are these beautifully wrought stories, centering on Kenyan women and their efforts to navigate the world around them. We talk in this episode about how Kenya is situated in history, but also in a global perspective. Right, but this episode is pretty personal too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We talk about ourselves as well as her characters, and how all of us struggle with the legacies of Kenya's difficult past, but also about how we can find possibilities for connecting with each other despite that. So if you're interested in a more positive angle, if you like, about how people can relate to each other despite difficult colonial histories, this episode is for you. Yeah, I would say that. It doesn't shy away from the tough stuff, though. We still explore a lot of critical angles on colonial legacies. But there is some hopefulness here that I think we could all use. Awesome. Oh, and if you haven't read any of her work, don't worry. There's plenty in this for you too. You don't need to know it to follow the conversation. But we reckon you'll read her stuff after listening. To cross the vast ocean to their south, water-chasing dragonflies with forebears in northern India had hitched a ride on a sedate, in-between-seasons morning wind, one of the monsoon's introits, the matlai. One day in 1992, four generations later, under dark purplish-blue clouds, this fleeting being settled on the mangrove-fringed southwest coast of a little girl's island. The matlai conspired with a shimmering full moon to charge the island, its fishermen, prophets, traders, seamen, seawomen, healers, shipbuilders, dreamers, tailors, madmen, teachers, mothers and fathers, with a fretfulness that mirrored the slow-churning turquoise sea. I just love that opening paragraph. <laughs> I love the image of the matlai blowing dragonflies and other travellers from India to Africa. This image of the east coast of Kenya, one of my favourite places in the world, makes it feel like what it is. Not a strange or exotic distant corner, but a perfectly common destination, albeit a particularly beautiful one, for people of the Indian Ocean. In this story, Africa is not some out-of-the-way place, and the people there, Africans and their visitors, are not caricatures. This is what I love about The Dragonfly Sea and Yvonne Adiambo Owar's first novel, Dust. Yvonne is an award-winning novelist and essayist based in Nairobi in Kenya. It was my pleasure to speak with her, and I want to emphasise that, as you can possibly tell by now, I am a fan. The worlds and characters Yvonne writes into being are not polarised between black and white, colonised and coloniser, victim and saviour, They don't ignore these historical and political dynamics, but they are far richer than that. Her work and my conversation with her ask the questions, how are we human in amongst these troubled histories? How can we connect with each other? And how can we remind ourselves of all the interactions we have had and will have across cultures that transcend colonialism? Here's another passage from much later in The Dragonfly Sea, 
where one of the book's main characters, Jin Lai, has recently arrived from China. He is in Pate, the island off the coast of Kenya, right near Somalia, where the novel is mostly set, and where we just heard about the Matlai winds blowing. He is noticing China's long, not recent, history there. A moment in dusk. Migrant dragonflies flitted above Jin Lai's head as he stopped to stare at Pate's old crescent-spaced tombs. Tang, he suspected, not Ming, as was presumed. Downturn of mouth, the wind on his skin, goosebumps, a realization. There was nothing unique about his presence here. He stroked the curves on a tombstone. Ebb, flow, repetition, rhythm of the ages. Nothing new or unusual about the arrival or departure of souls from here or elsewhere. It was the warp and weave of existence. Thank you. <laughs> so, so for me, I think that, yeah, that I, I love the way in which this place that is in the Dragonfly Sea, Pate Island, mm-hmm. in Lamu County, not too far from the border between Kenya and Somalia, a place many people listening to this outside of Kenya will never have heard of, mm-hmm. is completely central to the world. Yeah. yeah. Can you say something about that in, that theme in your work? Okay. Uh, I, I think a couple of things. Uh, um, uh, you know, Pate was central to the world uh, and was more central to the world than a lot of other places, I think, including the United States, for a long, 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 long time. It was the the site of the great uh, global monsoon uh, trading system that encompassed and incorporated what has become known as the Silk Road. Pate was the site, you know, the, the, uh, most of the ships that would traverse the, the oceans were the, the what becomes known as the Indian Ocean or the Western Ocean or the Swahili Seas were built on Pate Island. Pate was the center, center site of scholarship um, for, the, for, the, for the seas. It was the site of exchange of traders, of preachers, of imams, of, 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 of intellectuals that cut right across the, 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 the worlds of what we call the Indian Ocean. And its, its decline coincides with the arrival of the of the British and uh, with their privileging of Zanzibar. Though Pate had served as a hub for trade, when the British arrived in East Africa, they opted to use the nearby island of Zanzibar, now part of Tanzania, as the centre of trade instead, because the people of Pate were difficult to conquer. And because, of course, Pate was such a site of, um, of, of desire, uh, it's not just the British, it's the Omani Arabs as well, uh, who, because Pate repelled them, moved to Zanzibar. And when the British came, again, they privileged uh, Zanzibar. It was either easier to manipulate. Um, and of course, and, and, that, and that decline was uh, further amplified by what emerges as the post-independent state uh, with, their, with the new narratives they needed to create. But these new narratives amputate the entire history of the country and limit it to the time of the British, which is, which is a, just an act of pure stupidity. These days, if you only know the dominant narrative, you would think Pate had never been an important place because it wasn't important to the British. The history of Kenya is, and is what becomes Kenya is, is, is older, bigger, broader, and it's, it's central to the stories of the world.
One of the things I love most about Yvonne's writing is how human the characters are, how real they are, unlike in so much other writing about Africa. Race and ethnicity and how we write about certain ethnicities and who can write about what are talked about more and more in the context of literature and academia. There's an essay by Binyavanga Wainaina, who was a close friend and mentor of Yvonne's, called How to Write About Africa. With tongue planted firmly in cheek, Binyavanga wrote about the many ways in which writers and publishers and others tend to stereotype the African continent and its people. Africa is reduced to a one-dimensional depiction of a skinny person in traditional dress with an AK-47. But Yvonne writes in 3D. One of my favourite characters in the book, Dust, who makes only a cameo appearance, is Babu, a Kenyan Indian who runs a small, all-purpose shop in the northern part of the country. Many Indians were brought to Kenya by the British from one of their other colonies across the ocean and stayed on. They are well known for running small businesses like Babu's. Babu really made me laugh. Here, Yvonne reads a passage where Isaiah, a white British guy, comes into Babu's shop. There were outposts in the world where the sun's rays burned into lingering phantoms of the British Empire. Babu Paratpara Chaudhari was wiping the jar containing his teeth when through the sunlit door of his angry green-coloured store in a crowd of nine, he saw a Caucasian-looking man elevating a shiny object as he approached the shop. Babu always saw the Caucasians first. It was his way of connecting to an England he had imagined, loved, but never experienced directly. Willful journeying to and displacement in a foreign landscape had turned his Brahmin family into merchants. But clinging to sapless straws of caste, Babu Chaudhari had contented himself with assigning his geographical compatriots the place of the Panchamas while he settled into amorphous, self-stranded being in a not-England African space. Babu Chaudhari's father's father had set up supply shops through the Kenyan northern lands and then gone to Ethiopia. He lingers with the memory, wondering, as he often did, why he had not joined the rest of the family after they left East Africa for Rashimid, Leicester, England in 1962. He had been left behind to sell the family shops. But when he reached this one, the seventh of seven, a customer and then five more had shown up. He had served each one, intending to close shop at the end of the day. To assure himself that he was only transiting, every January he handcrafted a recruitment notice for a shop manager, which he glued to the door. Salary negotiable, accommodation and food provided. Only Hindi, Urdu or Gujarati speakers should apply with certificate of higher education. He had not received one suitable applicant. 46 years later, he was still in the same place. A fly hovers over a sack of five-year-old turmeric. Shh, shh. Babu urges the fly away. He props up his chin. Babu barely moved. Gout and gallstones. Glowering was his normal expression. It concealed disenchantment. Settling into his tubbiness, he noted the Caucasian man's courage. It was proper. The way he felt English posture should be. He frowned at the double-strapped haversack the man carried, 
relented when he saw it was made of pebble grain leather and not Chinese plastic. Expensive, dark, green, army-style cargo trousers, a beige jacket over a loose-fitting cream shirt, all of which Babu knew would become red and brown with dye-like dust by the end of that day. The large man was clean-shaven, broad-shouldered, finely muscled, with shaggy, dark grey-flecked hair plastering his forehead. Babu bet to himself that after five days the man would let his beard grow wild. As he waited for the man to speak, his eyes alive, Babu did a mental scan of goods to offload. Expired malariquin, 1970s curries and spices. He would blend this and hint that the result healed tick fever. If he attached a mantra to the package and proposed that it be consumed while wild sage was being burnt, he could imply that this ritual would reveal the image of God. Caucasians appreciated that kind of thing. It would also explain the cost. Babu chewed on his gums, glared at an aged donkey. Its distressed brain afflicted his days and most of his nights. <laughs> Thank you so much. He's such a magnificent character. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> Tell me about Babu. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Having been on the receiving end of tricks of this kind in many parts of the world, I appreciated poor Isaiah's humiliation as well as Babu's entrepreneurialism. Many first-time travellers find this kind of thing annoying, and I certainly used to, but when you understand Babu more, it makes way more sense. And frankly, it's pretty funny. Now, Babu is Kenyan. And a Kenyan of Asian extraction, but he's he's the he's the caricature of an older type, another type, and and partly Babu was my revenge. <laughs> like I said, I don't get mad; I get even. <laughs> he's a composite. He's one of the people. I mean, you 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 can go to the furthest corner of 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 this country, the place where people assume nothing exists. And you will find uh, the 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 traveler who, or who has come from India and more increasingly now China or even Somalia, who has set up a shop, and yeah, so he's he's the person you you will encounter. You will encounter the babus, however far you traverse this this country. Yeah, yeah. This ambivalence toward the British is pretty common. People know that colonialism was bad. But as Babu illustrates, people can also admire and approve of many British habits, like those Babu admires in Isaiah. This stuff is complicated, and real people have really complex ways of thinking about and responding to the colonial past. I am uh, admittedly an Anglophile, for example. So I will have my tea. I will cherish Tolkien. Um I shed a tear when I hear the pomp and circumstance. Uh, you know, I cry for thee, my country that shows up in the book. Even though I want to avert my eyes, I pay attention to the royal family and what's happening in the, you know, political situation in in England. I have an opinion about Brexit and its foolishness, and I feel very strongly about that. So you cannot necessarily be just one thing or another. To be Kenyan does not mean that I'm anti-British because to be Kenyan also means that inside of me there is something British, there's something um, Indian, there's something Somali, there's something Kikuyu. There's, there, there are all these things that flow inside uh, 
the person that finds him, him or herself in this place. And I like I like the places of of ambivalence, uh, the places of uncertainty, uh, because it means that we just do more a lot more work in terms of thinking um, that big question: what does it mean to be human, and to not settle into very easy, convenient ideas and answers. Yeah. The main character in The Dragonfly Sea, Ayana, who I loved so much I wanted her to be my friend, is from Pate, but winds up in China as something of an informal Kenyan ambassador after having been identified by a DNA test as a descendant of a Chinese fleet shipwrecked on the island a few centuries earlier. To say she is worldly is an understatement. Ajan, the main character in Dust, is less feisty than Ayana, but no less impressive. She lives across Kenya and Brazil, and the novel is the story of her quest to find out how her brother was killed during Kenya's post-election violence in 2007. This quest gets complicated by the arrival of a strange British man laying claims to her family's homestead. A number of the characters, but but Ayana and uh, Ajani in particular, they both, for me, mm-hmm. they have a desire for the world. They mm. they want to know the world. Uh, they're the people I meet on a on a daily basis, um, not just in Kenya but all over the world. Um, they are there's nothing unusual about them at all um, because they're people you and I have met. Indeed. That's why they're recognisable to you and, yeah. and to me, because we've met them, haven't we? Yeah, they're real. Yeah. They're real people. Yeah. 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 And it, it's also, it's not just, um, for me, it's not it's not just the Kenyan characters that are real. It's also the foreign characters. Mm. And I am very much an, out, an outsider here. And so I'm always really drawn to stories. And there are a number um mm that paint these rich pictures of foreigners and their relationships to Kenya. Mm. Um, and I wondered if you might be able to read some of the passages of the books that, that for me speak to this, or they paint these similarly real people. It was hard to pick a passage. There were so many options. I chose this one because of what it says to me about how people are drawn to the island of Pate in the Dragonfly Sea. I get it. That part of the world... Well, it calls me too. I also love this passage because of its mischievous account of how Pate's people received these foreigners. Invariably, at least three of those who had entered the island's cult of hospitality did not leave. There were those who, unknown even to themselves, belonged to the island and were covenanted to stay. There were those who tried to leave but never could. And there were far more than expected who left, only to show up again years later. Some enter the portals of the land, sometimes naked, sometimes alone, sometimes naked and alone and even dead. The island renamed these. Some tendered false names. Patty did not mind. Names are mere place markers. Their manners alone established their character and this determined if they should stay or leave. Other persons crossed into Patty to override its timeless codes. These, the would-be reformers, came, saw, scowled, sulked scolded and stipulated that the island transform itself for them. Invariably, the right wind swooped in to sweep these away. And then there were the men, always men who wore the beleaguered faces of hurriedly abandoned pasts. They entered Pate Island to disappear. 
the island hospitality apparatus took over. Under the shelter of a roof, they would be cajoled into revelations over shared meals. They were observed as they laughed at well-placed jokes. Laughter was a test. A disarmed man showed his soul, and the soul being naked revealed essence, and essence was truth. What what when you read that? What are your what are your thoughts about that? That sort of um, this the hospitality of of the people of Pate, mm. which is not exclusive to Pate, of course. No, um, and the push and pull of visitors. They're coming. They're going. Are they staying? What are they doing? How are they judged? Oh, you know. Uh, the cult of hospitality in the Swahili coast is second to none in terms of uh, it being an intelligence gathering mechanism. I love that. <laughs> I love that. And you can feel it too. You feel Absolutely. it. <laughs> the charming of the soul and, uh, and, 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 and it's framing. And if it delights in you, it finds a way to keep you there. And you're thinking you've made the decision to stay. You just know that you will never leave. You cannot leave. <laughs> You're stuck. <laughs> You're so stuck. And even if you try to leave, you dream of the place uh, daily. Uh, you dream, You will show up in the place even in your dream. So uh, and that's the pull. Uh, as you can see, it's my pull. It's a pull of the ocean for me. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's a longing that never leaves you. As I said, I get that. I really do. I am definitely not the only person I know who has struggled to get back on the boat when leaving Lamu, the bigger island near Pate, to get back to Nairobi. The cult of the human being. Um, so, and, and, and you charm the person um, with, with friendship, with the possibility of friendship, with the possibility of shared laughter and tears. Uh, you know the soul, you know the, you get to know the person in, in the kind of intimate way that the Bible talks about. It's not, not really just a physical, it's not a physical, it's a, it's a spiritual intimacy. It's pretty clear, I think, that Yvonne and I both value that, the connection between a guest and her host. But part of what this podcast series is exploring is why that isn't always what happens. And I think that's part of the grief that I think uh, in some of the post-colonial, and I use that sarcastic, the post is always very sarcastic, the post-colonial conversations is lacking. The grief of what was lost when the encounter um, with uh, the Occident was, was just one of brutality. In Kenya, the Occident, or just the West, was the British uh, we lost the capacity. We lost it's not the capacity. We lost the potential for an incredible friendship uh, and a an incredible way of being with one another. It could have happened. I know that's part of the, the unspoken and hidden grief of what could have been. What what was so difficult about allowing? I mean, I, for, strangely enough, even though I, I take this position, when I think of that, for some reason, there's a there's a there's a maybe it's an ancestral grief that that shows up as tears. I think what was lost, uh, why, was, what, why was it so hard to, um, to meet another and allow the codes and, and spirit of hospitality and getting to know one another um, to unfold so that there'd have been a more um, human relationship. So this restless roiling would not happen. I think part of the info, my, my own feeling is that part of this restless roiling is the grief I think on both sides. I mean, it's not just either sides. Say, it's on yeah. both sides. For me, it, mm. in some ways, it, it 
warms and chills my heart to hear hear you say that because it is a loss on both sides. It is. It breaks my heart. I mean, as you can see, there are tears in my eyes right now. Because the grief of what could have been, Samantha, um, if only we had dared to be human, really. Yeah. Yeah. And I really feel that. This idea that people could get to know one another, be a guest and a host, be curious about each other, without this shadow of the colonial past hanging over us, without the massive inequalities in wealth and life opportunities, without the trauma of colonial violence. It does feel to me that a different possible kind of encounter was lost. It's a loss on both sides, a terrible, terrible loss. Um, And uh, I imagine that whoever designed the universe would have wanted that uh, the children of of men, of humanity, uh, meet each other. Uh, with curiosity, with wonder, uh, with a uh, with a surprise, with a, with the idea of treating difference as a, a reason to discover an invitation. Yeah, an invitation. Yeah, the difference is an invitation to discover. It, it, it's not something to be instrumentalized and dehumanized and desacralized and and turned into something of um, to hold a justification to hold another in contempt. Um, so in a way that I think, and I think I was very aware of that particular, the sense of, of the loss of what could have been. Uh, um, I think that it's, it's, the, it's the Ethiopian, the, the Amharic, is it Tigrinya, who have the word uh, Tizita uh, for that, the, the nostalgia for, for a thing that, uh, it's a combination of, you know, of a future that one senses yeah, but it never was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, in the way that this 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 literature becomes a, a kind of beckon and a gesture to that, um, you call them foreigners. I don't treat them as foreigners. I treat them as those 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 things that fates, the winds, the 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 pull of history, the pull of desire, the pull of adventure uh, brings into people's lives. Um, they find themselves here. Um, I do not treat them. They're not. They're humans who find themselves here, like, as with the ebb and flow of life. And then they encounter other human beings, and they recognize that they are different. But the difference becomes a reason for discovery, for exploration, and and in certain cases, the surprise of of those unexpected forces like love, like desire, yeah, uh, like longing for another whom you never imagined you could ever long for. The conversation with Yvonne continues in part two. Head to our feed to listen. The Welcome podcast is based in Nam on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Nam is more commonly known as Melbourne, Australia. This episode was produced by me, Dr. Sam Ballaton-Crimes. It was recorded at Zamar Studios in Nairobi. Script supervision and editing by James Milsom. Theme music composed by John Bartley. Special thanks to Nazanin Zayda Cummings and Samuel Juguna. If you like this show and haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. It helps spread the word about the show and we really appreciate it. 